0: or online at victoriasecret.com.
1: Perfect home sweet home.
2: You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandys can give you that comforting pause. Celebrate the end of your workday with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandy's. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as another busy Monday flies by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies.
3: Queen Charlotte, the official podcast is a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Queen Charlotte, a Bridgerton story, the official podcast, where we're delving into the captivating world of costumes, characters, story, story, story. And today we have two incredible guests who have left an indelible mark on the industry with their exceptional talents. I know I'm laying it on thick, but we're going to have this journey of creativity and inspiration with costume designer Lynn Paolo and, like I've told you before, my best friend in my head, Arsema Thomas. We're going to kick off this episode with an extraordinary rising star who not only graces the screen with their undeniable talent, their beauty, they also champion human rights with unwavering dedication. Meet Arcema Thomas who burst onto the scene with their breakthrough role as young Lady Agatha Danbury in this series, A Queen Charlotte, which has definitely rattled all of us. Through their portrayal, Arsema shattered archetypes and discussed the power of representation in storytelling. We're going to talk about all of the scenes that brought us to our knees, and then we're going to talk a little just about Arsema. So she's got a passion for storytelling, and she's committed to social change. So enough said, Arsema is a force to be reckoned with. Let's hear a little bit of our conversation. It is my absolute pleasure to welcome Arsema Thomas to our podcast. Thank you so much for joining us, Arsema.
4: Thank you. Thank you. This is exciting.
3: I wanted to say thank you from one third culture kid to another. I definitely did a deep dive on you and listen to a, a speech that you gave before, and you referred to yourself as a third culture kid. And I got so excited because I am new to that phrase. I just heard that phrase for the first time maybe two months ago, and I'm like,
4: oh, that's me.
3: For anyone who doesn't know, uh, what is a third culture kid, and how are you a third culture kid?
4: So in a way, like I guess I'm a third culture kid because my parents, my mom is Ethiopian, my dad is Nigerian. But I grew up a lot in the U.S. And then from the U.S. I transplanted to growing up in Kenya. And so in a way, being a third culture kid feels like being like an alien in your family and an alien in the world around you.
3: Almost every because, space.
4: <laughs> yeah, it's it's it really does feel like that. Um And luckily, I have You know, my sister who is going through the same exact experience as me, but like a lot of people don't get that. And so it's strange. It's strange, but it uh, it makes you learn a lot and and honestly have to kind of take in everything that the world gives you.
3: Yeah. You know, I had a transplanted kind of experience like you did where Mm -hmm. I was living in the suburbs of Chicago and then suddenly was living full time in the Bahamas. Going oh, to school wow. and everything. And um, I mean, I felt like I fit in. Like I grew up with a Bahamian mom and like, but I was American girl. So yeah, mm. I get it.
4: <laughs>
3: I get it. The way you spoke about your experience reminded me uh, about Lady Danbury and really mm. about the ton, really about the ton. But I was wondering how you brought that worldview to your role.
4: I mean, I think I... I definitely did. Um, There's definitely like this sense of isolation that you can feel in Agatha. Um, And it's something that I definitely clocked onto when I was reading the script is like, she's so alone, not only in the fact that she's probably usually the only like, Black women in a, in a lot of the spaces. Um, but it's also the fact that, like, she thinks differently than a lot of people. And mm. she's probably never felt comfortable about talking about that because she's aware of that difference. And then, on top of that, as you see throughout the season, there's it's like that thing of the varying degrees of third cultureness is you see all of those people who are now part of the ton being part of a completely new society that they've never been in. They're now in another culture, um, and they have to assimilate, you know, act like they've been there before. It's like, it's what Lord Danbury says to her. Do not gawk like a peasant. (laughs) Behave as though you've been here before. That was so funny, though. (laughs) It's true. It's like the slogan for anyone who's ever moved to another, like, place is like, Act like you've been here before. Stop (laughs) gawking. (laughs) I was like, if that
3: was not someone in my family who I know. That is so funny. That's one of my favorite parts. And your reaction to those moments, too, just, just goes to show how, yeah, Lady Agatha Danbury is, she thinks differently. I think it's actually really remarkable to see that on screen. How did you feel about that? Do you feel proud?
4: Like, is that the right word to capture how you feel? You know, I do. I think I feel validated. Mm. Like, not only like me as Arsama, because there is that sense of me that's like, oh, yes, you know, you, you got chosen for this role and they didn't edit you out. So that means it's good um, because they had that option. <laughs> but it's also like this story for a lot of Black women is so powerful because. I think I grew up and always kind of knew that I didn't want to be the girl that gets the guy and they fall in love in every movie. I grew up not seeing me reflected back, that I just Mm. maybe it was conditioning, but I just there was something that I knew that like my story was something different. And to see this character at the end choose to be alone and that be such a power move. I was like, this is this is such a massive statement. This is this is the woman that I want to be, and like to be able to be her as she becomes her is such a generous blessing to have. So, yeah, I was I was just excited. I was this is like to also be in such a formative part of like my career. It's just great.
3: You know, something you said, though, it makes me think about what we believe in. You know, like you hear like award speeches, like how many times has like Lizzo said, this is for the girl, you know, who was like me, you know, when I was five. Mm. And I wonder for people who who hear that and they're like, man, if if I did see something like that when I was five, how would my life have been different? I can't fathom what my life would have been like if I did see myself back then or a story that I connected to back then so I think that's really interesting for people watching Queen Charlotte today to see the characters and what they represent
4: yeah I think it's going to probably accelerate the unlearning um mm. of self-hatred that I think that a lot of us are taught at a really young age um hopefully hopefully
3: So that's so interesting because the opening credits for me was very emotional. That graphic design of this brown girl swaying in all of these situations, constant. Yeah. And I don't know what it was, but I was like, oh my God. Some 12-year-old inside of me was excited about it. But I I think Queen Charlotte bridges that that gap.
4: I'm hoping it opens up the like world for like all of the other options like this shouldn't be the only one yeah. like that yeah. graphic is so much like every time when i first saw it i was holding back to this <laughs> because it was like the music and just this beautiful oh. like girl oh, and goodness. gosh it, that should be its own animated series so that like actual young girls can watch it because <laughs> this is a little bit you know adult but like you yeah. know it's it's so beautiful yeah
3: why do you think that there's a, a another influx of proving or disproving this work of fantasy, this work of fiction? And what does that tell you about the work you have ahead, considering your appreciation for spaces being created for you and um, your desire to create space for creatives?
4: So... We're talking about the comments that Queen Charlotte may or may not have been black. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Okay. Or and that it's just, you know, the whole thing is too out of left field, you know. Um, okay. It's like, yeah, yeah. It's like, okay, it's a fantasy. Why do we need to do this exercise? Mm-hmm. I know.
4: You know, it shows one that those people do not see black people to be like them. Because you, in that moment, cannot see yourself in that Black person. Yet for us, we have been conditioned time and time again to be forced to assimilate to whiteness, to see ourselves in whiteness. And so that to me just shows that you do not view us to be humans like yourselves or to be something other. But the thing is, I know that you do something by putting out more and more. Because it's shocking the first couple of times. And after the 20th, it's less shocking. And then you have no choice. So I think people shouldn't be afraid by the reaction. The reaction is a call that we're doing something right.
5: Mm. You know?
4: And I think we have to keep doing it until there's less of a reaction. Because why can't a queen be Black? Yeah like actually why not yeah actually
3: why not <laughs> Yeah, you know? yeah okay so we gotta t- we have to talk about the look yes I specifically want to know if you had a favorite hat oh because
4: the hat game was on point it was it was you know I love a big hat and the hat that I wear in the with, like, the very bright magenta dress. Because oh that's, like, the first goodness. time she wears, like, very bright color. I loved that dress. I love that hat. It's shocking. Yeah. I was like, gosh, I wish I could wear this for more scenes. Because it's crazy the amount of detail that they put into these outfits and these gowns. And you see them for, like, very brief yeah. seconds, you know. It's um, it's amazing. And it's also just, it shows you, like, the dedication of work that's put into, like, every second of this.
3: Yeah. Lady Danbury is literally becoming who she yeah. will become. Um, she doesn't wear bright colors like that later on, and that is just so interesting. I know to see. talking to
4: Lynn Palo actually about like just the costume design and the color story of of it all was really um, was really amazing to see the way that the outfits and the gowns and the colors that um, mm-hmm. Agatha is wearing mm-hmm. throughout the course of the season kind of mirror her emotional growth at the same time. So you see her wear these golds and these pale yellows because they're not her favorite color, but she's wearing it to appease this man. Then you see her go through black. um, And then, you know, obviously a mourning period. And then you start to see her start to like experiment with hats for like the very first time in like a more recreational way. And you start to see her go into like (laughs) pinks and purples and, like, then you'll start to see her kind of ideally, like, in between this time and the Burgerton era, start to see her settle into, you know, the more dark and bolder tones that you see her wear uh, in the Regency era.
3: You looked so amazing. You were absolutely uh-huh. stunning. And I, I'm sorry, but the copper tub, anytime you were in that yeah. copper <laughs> tub, oh, my goodness. I mean, just exquisite. So did you get an opportunity to work directly with, with Lynn on anything specific or any creative decisions or how you felt about something character wise? Um,
4: I think I wanted them to take mostly the lead when it came to the costumes at the beginning one because i was nervous <laughs> but two also because that kind of mimicked the situation she was in she wasn't choosing anything she was wearing so i felt like that kind of helped me get into like where she was as the character mm-hmm. because i don't actually know what she would have wanted because it's not her choosing it
3: we've only just scratched the surface of our sema thomas's talent and their impact, and their dreams. So stay tuned. After the break, we're going to get into their experiences and discuss the power of representation in
0: storytelling. Escape to Summer with Victoria's Secret.
1: perfect home sweet home
2: You deserve a moment to yourself every single day And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause <sighs> Celebrate the end of your workday with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves so as another busy Monday flies by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies.
5: If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. Those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian.
3: Hey, welcome back. Pull up a chair, get cozy. Before we get back into our conversation with Arsima, let's just take a quick moment to hear this note from the casting director, Kelly Valentine Hendry.
5: When Arsima's tape hit, that is someone I'd never seen before. And is quite an extraordinarily young woman, as you can tell. American also, which kind of threw me. I was like, oh gosh, are we going to cast an American accident person to play Lady Danbury, who's got the most English accent I've ever heard?
3: Lord Herman Danbury Yeah. And then there is what I call the port lines. Yes. Line. That has my circle of friends all in their feelings. How did you feel when you first encountered those lines?
4: I loved it because one of the first times she actually yeah. explains what is going on in her head. Like when she actually says yeah. how she's feeling.
3: I mean mm. ever. Like across the entire Bridgerton season one, season
4: two and Yeah. Wow. And it just feels mm. like this beautiful release that I think she so greatly deserves. Like you just see like how tough it is to be not only like a black one but black woman, but like in Agatha's case, a dark skinned black woman holding on like on her back like this entire situation um her family her like the the situation with the monarchy all of this and having no one to really discuss it with because obviously Carl was there but there's a power dynamic and there's also you know she be chatting okay um (laughs)
3: I was going to say, either they are really, really besties, or
4: Coral. No, <laughs> she's she's great, but can she be trusted? We, it's, it's, it's speculation. Speculation. More solitude. Yes, your cloak makes a fine blanket if you decide to have solitude on the ground. Coral. He was kind. He was joyful. I felt joy. Then I'm glad for you. So <laughs> they're like, she finally gets this chance, and I'm like, oh my God, she's thank God. Cause like, I was like feeling like <laughs> this for her myself, you know? It makes me think yeah. of people like my mother, who I sometimes realize I have not asked her how she is, you know? Oh my goodness. You, <sighs> Let's
3: yeah. There for a second. And why not? Like that's the question. Why don't we why don't we ask the Council yeah. of Aunties? Why don't we ask why don't we ask that question? It's is it a power dynamic? I don't know.
4: I personally am sometimes scared because if she's not okay, I'm like, oh my God, mm-hmm. <laughs> like I'll be broken. This is supposed to be the person yeah. who is immortal, impenetrable, you know, unwaveringly strong, inhuman. And so the moment that they mm. are human, it's like, oh, my goodness, then everything becomes like
3: yeah. shaky. That is huge. Every year I look and I'm like, wow, my aunt, my mom, my whoever was this age when this thing was happening and I was watching it and just having an entire different
4: Uh, Grasp
3: of what might have been going through their minds, happy joyful, sad moments, all of it. I really think Queen Charlotte does a really good job of
4: getting us to ask those kinds of questions. Yeah. Oh, for sure. There's something like this is literally when I recognize what it was and I watched Bridgerton, I was like, This is an ode to the aunties. This is this is really (laughs) for them. Like when do you get a prequel that is about the matriarch roles of the main story like the mothers the aunts the godmothers you don't usually get that and so then to show them and to show also like how instrumental they are in how nice and how you know comfortable (laughs) and diverse Bridgerton is it's it also then allows you to then go back and watch the show and then give them the kudos that they deserve.
3: This is gonna sound weird. I'm excited to grieve myself. Like to grieve a former version of myself and do mm. like, open a new chapter. Like I feel like that's a very scary, hard thing to do in the way Agatha does over the port wine scene. And I I, I mean just, I think just, it's yeah.
4: It's difficult to do without, like, something to ignite that moment because it's hard. And I think in that moment, she's grieving, like, what she thought of her life. Oh, wow. Like, she did not realize that she could do a lot of the things that she starts doing in that, like, one year, really, that we see all of this happen. I think the moment she's like, since I was three, mm. I was told this was the life. So she didn't realize that there was anything else. She's been living with like blinders on. And now that he's died, she's like, oh, wait, no, you're saying that there was this option and this option and I could have chosen something. And now I can't choose those things. Cause once something has passed, you have to move right. on. And so I think it's this fear maybe that she has of choice. Choice is a very yeah. scary thing when you start to exercise it because the blame falls on you if anything goes wrong, you know? <laughs> That's it's interesting, it's yeah. a very like independent <laughs> act to choose something for yourself.
3: Yeah. I want to ask about working with Pay Vand, who played Coral and Cyril. Just wondering what that experience was like for, for people watching who are just curious about life behind the scenes.
4: It was really amazing to be able to have Pei Vandere. She's an amazing individual, extremely kind, extremely nice. I wish we could have spent more time together. Um, and Cyril's really generous and a really, like, good and dedicated worker and, like, was a good example on, like, what mm. a good work ethic looks like. It's interesting because you're, like, put into a lot of these situations where a lot of people work very differently. Like, ways that you know and ways that you're, like, oh, that I didn't even know that was an option. Like, Cyril really brings music into the way that he, like, attacks his character. So he'll always be listening to music right before we... Go onto the set oh, of the era. Um, I don't actually even know what he was listening I to. I Wonder what he was listening. to. I know to. someone should ask him. But um, I'm
3: like listening to 444. <laughs> no, <something laughs> <like that.
4: laughs> knowing him, it's probably be something trendy. Um, <laughs> so that was really, really amazing to see, and I mean, I, I, it was lovely because, like band is really doing it the theater way which is you know like running lines mm. right before and like keeping it fresh which I am very comfortable with and so to see her have take the initiative and kind of like you know open the space for that was also quite inspiring because yeah I usually assume like I tend to take a back seat and like wait for people to like create the space mostly mm. as a a side effect for moving in a world ruled by white supremacy uh and being a black woman but um (laughs) and being afraid to take up space but um so it's nice to see somebody let me know (laughs) that I can do that and it's not read as anything other than being somebody professional
3: yeah yeah that is refreshing and I (laughs) I love, yeah. I love your, uh, your footnote yeah. Little <laughs> for anyone, <laughs> right? for anyone that's like in life or just because you're like, this is your first major role. No, because of life. Yes. yes. <laughs> oh, life gosh, made shoot. it
4: this it's way. True. Yeah, that's, that's great. Yes. Yeah. That'll
6: be the one.
3: <laughs> your career and education and STEM and your attention to Pan-African issues mm-hmm. gives you a really incredible array of possibilities as far as like how you can change the world and move the needle on anything Mm -hmm. your flavor of activism could be starting the conversation you know and that is that can be the right next step so um this that's awesome that this gives you that opportunity to start the conversation
4: yeah I mean I'm I'm really like the whole thing of art is political I'm Like, that's, like, my next step of, like, getting into that political art, whatever. Like, I love that space. That's something that's beautiful to look at, undeniably stunning. And yet you still feel, like, something about that has to deal with our, like, day-to-day life. I love that space. And that's what I want to do. It's, like, the people that I look up to, like Basquiat and, like, you know, uh, Kane Day Wiley, like all these people who there is something inexplicably poignant and stunning and in film and in TV, that'll be what I want to do. I was wondering if
3: just the act of saying acting is what I want to do frees you in a way that all of us don't really realize.
4: Yeah. I think for a really long time, I didn't tell anybody wow. that I wanted to do it. I, and then also having gone to two separate universities that both have amazing acting programs and drama programs, and seeing people go in and seeing how difficult the programs are, I felt like I don't know. I was like, "How dare I just say like I want to be an actor?" Um, and so then when I moved to Paris, I didn't tell anybody that i knew that i was going i didn't tell them what i was doing For the longest time i didn't tell anybody i was doing acting that was just between me and the people that saw me in like the drama programs i was going to at the time
3: you said you Um, had a nigerian father and an ethiopian mother
4: yes yeah i mean what i know (laughs) i my mother didn't even know that i moved to paris after i graduated she was just (laughs) she she called me one day and she's like arsema sorry, where are you? And I was like, Paris. And she's like, <laughs> when did you go there? <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, um, but like we had made um, a deal between my parents and I. They were like, if you do your like second degree, you can then do whatever you want. And at the time, I was like, I tried to do a 9-to-5. I'd worked at the United Nations Population Fund um, and it wasn't I mean, I was, I was in the cubicle, like doing, like preparing auditions, you know, I was, I was looking through signs as I was in my cubicle. And so it was very clear that it wasn't for me. And I think I just needed my parents to like, give me a chance to show them. And then, yeah. So the moment you
3: quit and left, like what snapped? Do you remember when you decided you were going to
4: buy the ticket? I remember I had just finished the Yale summer program for acting. And it was like the very last day. And I remember I pulled aside my my teacher and she's a
5: hard ass.
4: (laughs) So I knew she wasn't going to lie to me. And I was like, hey, I need to ask you a question. She's like, okay, what or something, and I was like, one, what do you think of my braids? She's like, it's not professional, but they're cute. And I was like, okay, cool. And I was like, that's a good barometer. Um, <laughs> and then two, I was like, do you think I could do this? Like, do you think I should do this? Like, is it worth me doing it actually? all I remember taking away from it was like, she said yes. And I remember my lease was coming to an end in New Haven. I had no job. Uh, I had no real reason to be anywhere. Um, And I remember I was thinking about, like, I think I had had a friend at the time we were planning on living together in Brooklyn. And I was like, I don't, how much I really need to be here Wow sounds
3: like a fun time
4: but <laughs> yeah it's like it sounds expensive and I think I can live like the struggling artist life in a place that's different in a place that challenges me and I you know I'd lived in New York City before so it's like I want to be somewhere that is are some of figuring it out on her own and I was like I I know French enough to to live in Paris. I was looking at tickets and there was a ticket for $49 direct from New York to Paris. And I was like, that is the sign. And I bought it. What? It's meant to be. Yeah.
3: Yeah. For <laughs> Wow. Just betting on yourself. Mm. I know a lot of actors are like, you know, I don't, I don't like myself into the role you know I feel like though in so many ways you and young Agatha Danbury were a match um just your just your personal story and seeing how Agatha becomes who she becomes and just takes a chance on herself yeah Lots of work to do, lots of work ahead, and we're all excited to see what you do, and we are completely floored and mesmerized. You were just wonderful, and we really, really appreciate it, and we thank you for your time.
4: Thank you. This has been, oh my gosh, (laughs) love it. I am glad that this is recorded because I can relive this amazing chat over and over again. I'm serious. This has been hands down top five chats. <laughs> well,
3: I'm glad. I'm really glad. Um, there's <laughs> never there's never enough time to cover it all. But um, yes, you you gave us the nuance we needed. We really appreciate it.
4: Thank you so much for having me.
3: Now that we've been inspired by Arsema's incredible journey, y'all, she did not tell her parents where she was. Okay. That's that's dedication. <laughs> Before we delve into the world of costume design with Lynn, let's take a quick break.
0: Escape to Summer with Victoria's Secret.
1: your perfect home sweet home.
2: You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandys can give you that comforting pause. Celebrate the end of your workday with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as another busy Monday flies by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies.
5: If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian
3: You're listening to Queen Charlotte, a Bridgerton story, the official podcast. Let's get back into our conversation. Our next guest is none other than Lynn Paolo with an impressive list of accolades under her belt, or shall I say, tucked in the bones of her corset, including many Emmy nominations and Costume Designers Guild Award nods. Lynn has become synonymous with iconic and unforgettable costumes. When you're thinking of the world of Shondaland, we're talking Scandal, Bridgerton, her work has captivated audiences worldwide, so without further ado, please join me in welcoming Lynn Paolo. I am so excited to introduce you to our listeners. You are the Emmy award-winning genius behind these beautiful visuals. It's absolutely breathtaking. Um, and we're so excited and delighted to be speaking with you about them.
6: Thank you so much. It's reciprocal. Oh, oh no! Um, thank you. Thank you for that.
3: So, Lynn, there is there's so much to take in. Um, we could we could literally just start anywhere. But I'm wondering for you, where would you start when you begin to unpack? your journey. I guess, yeah, would you like to talk about your first encounter with the script?
6: I think by now most people know that Shonda and I have had a long career together in terms of costume design. Um, And I talk about this all the time, that she is such a gift to costume designers, certainly to me, because she gives me so much creative freedom. But within that freedom, we do work together very well, I feel. Um, so she, she didn't even present me a script. She presented me an idea. What would you think, Lynn? Would you like, would you like, come on, she's handing me this amazing project. Lynn, would you be interested in doing a period piece set in 1761? Yes, Shonda, I would. (laughs) It was that moment of, okay. So, um, we started the process with concept boards, as you do with everything, um, certainly on this kind of project. And I pitched to Shonda that I would love to do a Met Ball and not a period piece. And I showed her an image from Charles James, who was one of my favorite designers in history. And there was a Met Ball, I think about 10 years ago, that was based on his work. And, um, and sort of my pitch for Young Queen Charlotte was it shouldn't feel period, it should feel like she was going to a, a to a modern Met Ball. And that's how we started the project.
3: Was there a particular piece that struck you as your key inspiration for the, our title character, Charlotte?
6: For Charlotte, yeah. I mean, if you look at Cecil Beaton's picture from the 1950s of Charles James's collection of evening gowns from that period, that was our first image on the wall that we put up in our office and then after that we based everything the palette was certainly based on matisse so we had so many impressionist paintings on the wall uh, everyone mm. keeps saying it looks like a box of macaroons and i'm and i always say i feel like it feels like a lily pond somewhere in france do you know surrounded by beautiful flowers um so that that was where we started. We literally just took some f- French impressionistic paintings and this one image from Charles James, and that was our starting point. And we built on everything from that. Wow, I
3: one of the things that struck me when thinking about it, kind of in a big picture way, and of course with not having expertise in this area, was the the color palette uh, just. I there was I never felt like I was kind of um stuck in a certain type of box of crayons. It the colors were just all across the spectrum. Uh, Lady Danbury has that fuchsia dress and there's chartreuse, there's there are so many colors. I was wondering if there was any like key direction or thinking you had about about that, especially with each character's development. I'm thinking about Lady Danbury specifically.
6: I think, you know, we were, we are a prequel. Mm -hmm. And there, Ellen Miroshnik did such a beautiful job on that first season of Bridgerton with the color. I just thought it was absolutely stunning. So we're, it's sort of, we're looking at the early years of these lovely ladies' lives. And, and we start in one color range and then we progress to another and I think you raise an amazing point about the show in that Shonda had written this fantastic script that told us how our characters got to be where they are in Bridgerton and so she and so young lady Danbury talks about I wear these colors because my husband likes these colors but it's not the color that I prefer which kind of broke my heart for her Yes. And then you transition. So we had that, again, gift from Shonda of knowing where we needed to end with the characters. Lady Bridgerton is in Bridgerton Blue. Lady Danbury is in these rich burgundies, like as you say, very rich sort of regal colours. But she starts in golds, which are also stunning on Arsima. And when you first meet her stepping out of the carriage, when she comes to the wedding, she steps out of the carriage. But it's not her color. And I love that we learn about Lady Danbury, that we learn why she dresses the way she does in Bridgerton. I just think, I, I hope that the Bridgerton fans will understand that this is sort of an origin story. And and how did these, you know, the three ladies, uh, Queen Charlotte, Lady Danbury, and Lady Bridgerton, how did they end up where they are in the Bridgerton timeline?
3: Lynn, can you tell me how... Queen Charlotte departs from its older sister, Bridgerton, since it is like a Met Ball and the costumes aren't so tied to the times.
6: A lot of the story in our six episodes is about the introduction of a new youthful queen to England and the sense that there is a mingling of society and there's the old tone and the new tone. So young Charlotte, we wanted her to embody that fresh you know new exciting way of dressing which which expresses the excitement of the new town so specifically in the wedding scenes we see charlotte you know throw off the british wedding gown and put on her wedding gown it's sort of a i would say an easter egg in a way for the audience to understand that this is a, this is a new world and so she embodies that in the way she dresses. I mean, she's very when you see young Charlotte with um, Augusta the king's mother, there the contrast is exceptionally different, isn't it? I mean one yes. is fresh and young and the other is sort of very traditional very period. Yes. So that was our that was our sort of storytelling through the costume. And then slowly, as the years go on and until the very end of the show, which I think mean, I'm still get quite emotional about it. Um, young Charlotte ha- has to embody the crown. She becomes full circle. And in the way that Augusta protected her son in her own way, whether you think it was right or wrong, um, young Charlotte now has to embody both the male and female versions of the, of the, of the crown. And I always, mm at the time when we were working on this reminded everybody about that movie about Queen Elizabeth and you see this amazing image at the end of Kate Blanchett as the virgin queen and so young Charlotte has become the queen and the king she has now has to embody everything about the crown and in that regard she's sort of she's sort of regressed back to the fashion that she wouldn't have worn as a young woman mm. now i'm making all of that up in my head uh, I don't know what Ellen's, <laughs> and I should ask. I should call Ellen and ask her. Um, I, I think that you know our story is sort of out of time in a way. I mean, even though it's set in very specific dates, um, mm-hmm. but again, it's an origin story, and the end of my story has already been told by Ellen Morosnick in her costume. So I, I sort of had to back into that and go, okay, so why did, why does. Queen Charlotte dressed this way in yes. the 1800s. So that was our sort of arc for her in our storyline.
3: Wow. For When I saw your costumes, I the what I saw you do, Lynn, for me I saw Charlotte compensating or filling all of that empty space George left her with um, and she had to just fill it with, opulence and more and more. Um, Yes, you could see that, that arc. There's this moment where she's got this pink shimmery dress. It's right when she is walking to dinner and it's the first time she sees young King George for a meal in however long it's been since their wedding night. It honestly took me back to being a little girl. It it just felt so shimmery and delightful and flowers. Like it reminded me of my era of I love pink and flowers and everything and sparkly shoes that light up. Um, (laughs) (laughs) That's what it reminded me
6: of. You sound like my daughter, Gemma. I love that. Um, (laughs) It's her favorite gown. This was a conscious choice the pink and the shimmeriness of it and the princess quality of it. The princess but when, quality. But when he says, hi, Charlotte, I'm here for dinner, she is not that sweet little princess.
3: Bingo, yes. Is it all right if I join you for a meal this evening?
6: A meal? A meal? A meal?
5: Charlotte, where are you going? Where are you going? I do
6: not know. Just away from you, wherever you are not.
5: Charlotte, 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 if you'll just give me a chance. Charlotte, stop walking this instant.
6: There's a whole montage of her eating alone, alone, alone you know, months of being alone. Yes. And each each of those meals was a different costume, which is on the screen for maybe six seconds. We have to talk just about like, that. <laughs> <laughs> we kept going, oh, she's changing again. She's changing again. Uh The production was going, oh, my God, Lynn, do we have to change again? Yes, we do. Oh, no. Um, She's a strong woman, and she is a boss in that scene. And she's like, ah, ah, ah. We loved that contrast for that scene. And it was the most romantic gown for a not very romantic scene because she's quite upset, isn't she, Um, as she should be. Her husband's been gone this whole time. So um, that's why we chose that particular gown for that scene.
3: Okay, that montage, we have to talk about this montage, because that's what I, I was thinking of it from, at least trying to think of it from your point of view, and how little time you those costumes, the entire ensemble actually made it on screen. Sometimes she had a wig on with curlers in it at one point,
6: and um, all of the undergarments. I know. It was great. And honestly, you didn't see everything that we did. Was, there were a lot of um, costumes that I don't think made it to the cut. Oh, my goodness. That. I think the whole montage was just to tell the story of loneliness. Like, even though she's surrounded by, all, as you said, opulence and you know, these gorgeous fabrics and jewels and the shoes, and thank you to Roger Vivier because they – They gave us so many beautiful slippers and shoes for the show um, that she's just alone. And even when you have all that luxury, it doesn't, it feels as though you would find happiness in that. But I think it is a sort of a metaphor for life and that, you know, without her partner, without the person that she wants to spend the rest of her life with, she was just centered in loneliness and, um, Everyone on the production end kept saying to me, oh, Lynn, I'm so sorry you're having to, you know, create so much for so little screen time. And I I was the exact opposite. I was like, bring it on. We were having a blast creating all these beautiful gowns. I bet. And we created, I think, 30 gowns for young Charlotte before we even had the real outline of all those scenes. And... um one point the production manager said to me do you think you're going to need that many and I was like yeah I do think we're going to need that many so and we did I think out of the hundreds and hundreds of gowns that we made for Charlotte and I I, the pieces I think it was about 130 gowns um there was only one that we didn't use at the end so we were yes with the matching corsets and the underpinnings and the shoes and the hair accessories it was crazy
3: you are playing with my emotions right now. That's a
4: lot.
6: (laughs) That is so much. That is so
3: much. And okay, so when you say 130 pieces, you don't just to clarify for listeners and anyone like me who who is really just curious, you mean entire ensemble, so to say, or like a ruffle that you added back in for a different scene?
6: We didn't repeat anything on Young Charlotte and each gown is really two pieces: the skirt and the overrobe. Ah. So that's so. I'd say I would say it's over a hundred gowns total. I'd have to check with Laura Frecon, who was my co-designer on this. But at the end, it's boxes and boxes and boxes of gowns. And I wish I had an exact number for you. Um, oh. Someone asked us the other day, "How many costumes did you make for this?" And it's in the thousands. Yes. Oh, um, for many reasons. We couldn't, first of all, most people don't do stories about loss. And I love that Shonda did a story about loss, about Queen Charlotte losing, you know. Her, it's stunning, isn't it? And and people in mourning, that, you don't see that on television or in movies, I don't think, very often in this I, period. Yeah. So none of that existed. And even the livery from the 1760s didn't exist in England. You know, we could, we didn't rent anything. We made everything. It was challenging, but also it was fun. I was thrilled. I'm always excited to do more. Uh, I, I'm the opposite of some um, people that I know in my business who would rather lean into, oh, well, let's find it. I just, you know, give me a piece of fabric and let me make something. I love it.
3: It, it clearly seems like less is not more in in your world, less, <laughs> <laughs> less is not
6: more. It's <laughs> absolutely <Let's> go big. <laughs> true. I, the other funny story for you is that we kept running out of jewelry. So oh. again. There's a moment at the we, beginning of episode
3: five where even though they're in the dark, Lady Danbury and um, Viscountess Violet are in the dark. Their jewels are dancing from the light on the stage. They're at the opera. These jewels. Are they bought, oh, borrowed, made? Well,
6: I will say that most of that jewelry in the opera scenes was, um, we we custom made it in-house. But the necklace and earrings that Lady Danbury had on were by my friends from Larkspur and Hawk. They're based in New York. And they um, create modern versions of Georgian jewelry. And I had come across them through a friend of mine and, you know, written to them, and they were stunningly kind uh, to the show. And in fact, young Queen Charlotte's wedding band, that beautiful ring that George puts on her hand during the um, the marriage ceremony was from Loxbur and Hawke. So that's actual; those are real jewels. It's not costume.
3: I was also wondering how you affix the jewels to the bodice. Charlotte says it's a whalebone corset. Can you tell me a little about the corsets that were a part of this
6: production? Yeah, so obviously it wasn't a whalebone corset <laughs> because <laughs> that would be very, very wrong. Um, but I think Shonda was speaking to you know how uncomfortable your clothes must have been as a young woman, yeah. and how restrained women were in their movement during that period. However, we did the exact opposite. For young Charlotte, we did bone sort of the front of her gown, of her uh, corsetry, and also into some of her gowns. But the side panels had elastic in there because we did not want young Charlotte to be confined in her movements. So when you look at her, when she moves, even when she runs down the hallway after her brother signs the marriage contract, she can move
4: yes
6: yes so that was a conscious decision on our part not to have her be so confined and then you know with other characters again Augusta who was her antithesis we really did you know structure her corsets because it was important wasn't it for her to stand a certain way
3: oh my goodness and it's so evident
6: and Michelle, by the way, Michelle was a trooper. She was like, strap me into that thing, Lynn. Come on, let's do it. So Michelle's a real. She's an amazing partner when you're, you know, having to deal with that element of costume and costume design in this period. But she, she loved it. She loved the corsets.
3: We got to talk about young Agatha. I love her character, what she embodies. And what I think I love about Lady Danbury is... I loved Lady present-day Lady Danbury so much. And um, Agatha, young Agatha, caught my attention first because of how different her colors are. And I remember speaking with Ajawa before and she said you know I, I i my character the way i see her she she looks different from the other women her hair is straight and pulled back she wears darker colors because she is she doesn't need all the fuss and young agatha is fussy she's got curls she's got flowers ruffles can you tell me about your team's thinking your thinking in bringing agatha young agatha to how we know Lady Danbury in present day, because that is a journey.
6: Oh, it is most certainly a journey. It's almost as if young Agatha is playing a role early on in the story. She's conforming to a role that her parents have forced her into from being a very young child. And within that role, however, I do love that, I mean, she is being a dutiful wife. And she is sort of, you know, doing the things that make her husband happy, although she herself is very unhappy. But she's also managing to create her own world and surround herself with her friends, you know, her maid who's become a confidant. Um, And she's the one, really, who secures the succession of the Danbury family. She is the one that, has the knowledge and power to go up against Augusta in our story, which I I absolutely love
5: mm-hmm.
6: about the character, but is also a true friend to young Charlotte. So you see why the two women, albeit it's a s- sort of strange friendship later on in life, that yeah. they do have sort of a mutual origin story. And and you see this transition of, of young Agatha from the colors that her husband loved that she didn't love. Then through the mourning period after her husband passes away, which are actually some of my favorite costumes on the show, I, you know, lo- loved creating all those walking costumes that she wears um, with the veils. It was yeah. so much fun. And you to see, see her in those green fields, you know, just yes. so pretty. I find her so compelling, don't you?
3: Absolutely. And I love that you said you loved working on the funeral costumes because I was wondering if you had to uh, uh, make accommodations or do any special encrusting of jewels to make those darker fabrics pop on screen.
6: All of Agatha's mourning costumes are encrusted. With jet beads. So when she moved in life, it just shimmered. And you do get a sense of it, Oof. but you don't see the detail as much as you would with your eye in person. But it was a conscious choice and a choice that I talked to Tom Berica about that even though Agatha was supposed to be in mourning and supposed to be, you know, not leaving the house, all those things. That when she does leave the house to go for her rambles, um, we, we wanted the camera to find her shimmering in that countryside. And so we spent a lot of time hand embroidering all the veils. It almost looks like tears, but just oh, this tiny wow. touch of something. across. So it wasn't just a simple piece of veiling. So everything was hand embroidered, embroidered by our in-house team. And I, they're some of my favorite costumes. They really are. I
3: love that the tears are in the veil and that she's still shimmering through because she, (laughs) that whole thing is about, she, she's mourning, but she's also mourning. I think she's grieving for herself too. Like the three-year-old that had to be prepared all this time. So, oh,
6: wow. I didn't. Yeah, I I agree with that, with what you're saying. I think that is, I think that is her time of, you know, Recollecting her life. Mm. How did she end up here? How can she dig out of this? Possibly, you know, having the crown take everything she's worked for. Mm -hmm. You know, there's that fit scene with the lawyer who says, You'd either get married again or you, you know, unless you can manage the succession for your son, you're going to lose everything. Yeah. So I think it's a mourning for, you know, having given up so much. So I, just, I do think it's quite poignant and lovely. And I so respect that Shonda in the middle of this tale full of color and life takes this moment to be just a little pensive mm-hmm. about the choices women had, but still beautiful.
3: Right. Lynn, it has been such a pleasure speaking with you and getting into your head. And you're obsessed about the story, just
6: like the rest of us.
3: Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. It's really fun to hear.
6: Everyone should know I'm a fan too. I love it. I watched all two seasons of uh, uh, Bridgerton and, you know, I'm anything that Shonda does, I'm there. I love it. Yeah. I love her work. I'm very fortunate to get to play in this world. Very fortunate.
3: Thank you so, so much for your time. Take
6: care. Thank you for everything.
3: Thanks again to costume designer Lynn Paolo and young lady Danbury, Arsema Thomas. We're really grateful for their time, insight, and fresh perspectives. On our next episode, Golda Rochevelle and India Amartafio have a sit down.
2: Fun fact, whenever the queen is sitting down, she's in Ugg boots. Let me reveal that right now. Any form of comfort Golda Rochevelle can get while playing this part, I will go there. So know this world... Ugg boots. <laughs>
3: <laughs> queen Charlotte, the official podcast, is executive produced by Sandy Bailey, Lauren Homan, Alex Alche, Tyler Klang, and me, Gabrielle Collins. Our producer and editor is Tari Harrison. Subscribe to the podcast anywhere you get your favorite shows. Get the book. I'm a crispy turn the page, smell the binding kind of queen, but you can download it. And you can find Queen Charlotte, a Bridgerton story on Netflix. We'll see you next week. Queen Charlotte, the official podcast is a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio. For more podcasts, visit the iHeartRadio app,
1: Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. compatibility
5: What do the most successful growing businesses have in common? They are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases, and pay a 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.